Our scripture today is from John 20. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am descending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said, these things to her. Welcome to this joyous day as <clears throat> we as followers of Jesus celebrate this resurrection Sunday. This journey that we've taken through Lent, it can be heavy, it can be dark, it can be bitter, but I pray as you awoke this morning that you felt the joy of this day, this joy of Easter wash over you. In each of the gospel accounts, we get different details, different perspectives on what happened at the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. We might say that each of the gospel writers uh, had their camera set up in a different location and they captured the scene slightly differently. Last year we looked, actually the last two years we've looked at the account in Mark's gospel. If you remember, Mark's uh, account of the empty tomb is, is pretty strange. It's this abrupt and puzzling uh, story, and it ends with this 
the women fleeing and they're, they're trembling and they're bewildered and they're saying nothing to anyone. I find it a, a very powerful moving in its own way. But one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that more than any Gospel writer, John gives us these, these very close encounters between Jesus and one other person, these intimate encounters uh, with the individual in Jesus. So in John's account, uh, the camera zooms in on one person, on one woman's experience of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. And just think, just think about that for a second, okay? We profess this is the most consequential event in human history, okay? Who gets to be the first person? Is it, is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Is it, is it one of Jesus' inner circles of disciples? Is, is the most explosive news in history, is that going to be handed off to a man as one would expect in that day? No, it's handed off to a woman, Mary Magdalene. Okay, who is this woman, Mary? I think before I, I say who Mary is or what we know about Mary, I should probably clarify what we don't know about Mary. Imagine with me for a second that you've died and you, uh, someone at your funeral is telling a story about you. And they decide to go ahead and grab some stories from your brothers and sisters and just splice that into your story. Now, they may not be bad stories, but that's not your story, is it? And unfortunately, that is what has been happened with Mary Magdalene for over 1,500 years now. See, there's these other stories in the gospel accounts about other women, and, and uh, unfortunately, it seems to be mostly men. Men have been grabbing these stories, and they've been putting them on to Mary Magdalene. The problem is they're not her story. This seems to have started with uh, Pope Gregory the Great in 597 in a homily. Uh, he, he combines Mary Magdalene with the uh, unnamed woman in Luke 7. This is a woman, if you remember, who washes Jesus' feet and is called a sinner. And then guys like Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Mel Gibson come along. And they do not help the situation. And Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. He, he takes the liberty to portray Mary Magdalene as the same woman who's caught in adultery and nearly gets stoned. Again, we don't have that. doesn't say that. And then in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, Mary Magdalene sings this line. I don't know how to love him, what to do, how to move him. He's a man. He's just a man. And I've had so many men before in very many ways. He's just one more. Okay, so Andrew Lloyd Webber portrays Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. The problem is, again, these, none of these connections are in the Bible. And as I've noticed, female commentators are quick to point this out. They're not there. So, so you've got to scrub Jesus Christ Superstar from your mind today. And let's look at what is in the Bible. Who is this Mary Magdalene? We actually don't know a lot about her. We, we can guess that she's probably from uh, up in Galilee by her, last, by her name, Magdalene. There's a city up on the shore of Galilee called Magdala. And this is the Sea of Galilee, if you remember, is where Jesus, most of Jesus' ministry took place. Uh, Luke tells, has this brief little line where he says that seven demons came out of this Mary. We know Mary was a follower of Jesus, but not just any follower of Jesus. Mary was a fiercely devoted follower of Jesus. Think about it. Uh, after Jesus' death, most of his disciples scatter. Who's at the cross? Mary Magdalene's there. And today in our passage, we, we encounter a woman of profound love and of profound grief. I don't know how your Easter morning began. This is how mine began. It began with a pretty good night's sleep, and then came coffee. So, so, so good. I know there's another brother here that uh, had a similar experience as me this morning. 
who also gave up coffee for Lent, and it was, um, it was a wonderful experience for him too, I believe. And then I headed down a, a cemetery down the road from my house where I joined other Jesus followers at a sunrise Easter service, and they then served me this delicious, delicious hearty breakfast. I'm with you all now. It's been a good morning. It's been a cold morning, but it's been a good morning. Mary's Easter morning was a little different. We read in our passage that Mary's Easter morning begins in the dark. I imagine the night before, Mary, uh, she's tossing and turning in her bed. Her mind is racing until she can't sleep until finally she decides she's had enough and she heads to a cemetery in the dark to seek out a corpse. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep, but that's not what I do. It's good to remind ourselves at this point that Mary is not going to a tomb to seek a dead body come back to life. In John's account, actually, it's not entirely clear why Mary gets up in the middle of the night and wanders out to a cemetery, other than she wants to be near a dead body, but not just any dead body, Jesus' dead body. Mary's experiencing profound grief at the loss of Jesus, and she is drawn to the tomb amidst that grief. Maybe some of you have felt drawn to the burial place of a loved one as a way to process your grief. Mary's Easter morning doesn't begin with coffee and a sunrise service. It begins in grief. The death toll from COVID in our country now approaches one million. One million. I'm thinking of all the people on this Easter morning who will wake up and the first emotion that hits them will not be joy, but it will be grief as they recognize someone that they love will not be with them here on Easter. This week I read that uh, in an article that every American who has died of COVID leaves on average nine close relatives that are bereaved. Some of you here today are probably among those bereaved. Nine million Americans in grief. That's a staggering number. It is a staggering amount of collective and national grief that, let's be honest, we have not quite processed as we probably should. But I, here's the deal. I can't really get my mind around that much grief. I don't have a way to process that much grief. One million lives doesn't have the power to move me at an emotional level. But one person's story does. That has the power to move me. This week I read in the article in The Atlantic entitled The Final Pandemic Betrayal. And the article is about uh, how millions of Americans are mourning the loss of loved ones from COVID, and they, they find this experience profoundly lonely. They're detached from society. They're detached from their support network. Many of them so cruelly have actually and were actually detached from their loved one at the moment of death. And one of those people was Teresita Horn. Teresita was struggling herself from COVID, had spent a week in the, uh, in the hospital on a breathing machine, while at another hospital, her 13-year-old son, Donovan, was also struggling with COVID. And Teresita, from her hospital bed, she had her phone, she was separated from her son, and she watched Donovan die. And she told the interview, I remember screaming, when your kids are sick, they need you, but I couldn't be there to comfort him. I couldn't hold his hand one last time. I may be numb to the collective grief of nine million people, but the grief of one mother was almost too much to bear. By focusing the camera on one woman, on one woman's desperate quest to be near the person she loved one more time, the gospel writer allows us to feel in our bones, to feel in our guts the grief and pain that has resulted from Jesus' death. 
It is a profound, shall we say, maniacal grief that sends Mary wandering out into the night, into a separate, into a cemetery, into a desperate and frantic search for a dead body. And what Mary finds at the beginning of her quest in the garden cemetery alarms her. What Mary finds is that this four to six foot wheel-shaped stone of considerable weight has been removed from the entrance to the tomb where Jesus' body has been placed. And the first thought that uh, uh, almost assuredly does not come to Mary, Mary's mind is that there is a dead man walking in this garden cemetery. No, the, most likely the first thought that comes to Mary's mind is grave robbers. See, see through her, her veil of grief, Mary doesn't see a miracle when she sees the tomb. She sees vandalism. And the vandalism then pours salt on an open wound of grief that sets her off in a sprint towards Simon, Peter, and the other disciple. Mary then passes on that message, and that message then sends them on their own sprint to the tomb, to the scene of the crime. Peter is the second to arrive, but he's the first to enter the tomb. And when he enters, he sees strips of linen and a cloth that have been wrapped around Jesus' head. What this means to Peter, we're not told. See, Peter is processing his own complicated grief that involves not just the death of his teacher, his rabbi Jesus, but the betrayal of Jesus. The other, then, the other disciple then takes his turn, and he goes in, and he peers in the tomb, and we're told that he saw and believed. But what he saw and what he believed, we're not told. Whatever the two disciples recount to Mary, if anything, it seems to have left Mary unaffected. Because as the the camera turns back to Mary, we see her standing there weeping. Mary's fears have been confirmed. Jesus' dead body is missing. Now it is Mary's turn to peer into the tomb. And when she does, she sees two angels in white seated with Jesus where Jesus' body had been. One on the head and one where Jesus' feet would have been. Now let's think about this for a second. Mary has just encountered in an empty tomb two angels. You know what the typical response in the Bible when you encounter an angel is? Absolute fear, terror. That's why so often in the Bible we read, there's an encounter with an angel, and the first words are, don't be afraid, because that is the natural response to an angel. Angels terrify people and then have to calm them down. But that's not what happens to Mary, is it? And that's not what they say to Mary. What do they say to Mary? Woman, why are you crying? See, Mary is so consumed with grief, so alarmed that Jesus' body is missing, it doesn't even seem to register in her mind that she is talking with two angels. That seems to be the least of Mary's concerns because Mary is on a quest to find Jesus. This is a singular quest that if the angels do not seem to be able to help her with, if they can help her locate the body, great. If not, she's got to keep going. See, grief seems to have removed Mary's capacity to fear anything except the fear that she won't find Jesus. Mary then turns around and comes face to face with the one thing, the one person she's been seeking. But again, nothing seems to register. Mary assumes it's a gardener. The unrecognizable Jesus then says to Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now this question that Jesus asked her, Whom are you seeking, is a really interesting question. It's a really interesting question because if we are to go back to the beginning of John, we will find a question very similar to this one. In fact, it's the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel. John, uh, Jesus is is being followed by two disciples of John the Baptist. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus wheels around and he says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? It's a profound question because it cuts right to the heart of who we are because it asks the question, what do you want? The question, what do you want, is as James K. Smith says, the first, the last, and the most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. Jesus doesn't ask Mary, what do you know? Jesus doesn't ask Mary, what do you believe? Jesus doesn't say to Mary, Mary, tell me your theology of the atonement. Tell me your eschatology. And I'll tell you if you have properly understood it, my death and resurrection or not. That's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? Whom are you seeking? What do you hunger and thirst for, Mary? Mary, what gets you out of bed in the middle of the night and sends you out in the dark to a cemetery to wander around looking for a dead body? Mary, what do you want? And for Mary, it's crystal clear. There's no hesitation. There's no equivocation. There's no deliberation because Mary seeks Jesus. And if this gardener can help her on her quest to find Jesus, great. If the gardener has some information about where Jesus' body has been taken, great, because then, I don't quite know how this will work out, but Mary is going to then drag that body back to its rightful resting place. But if the gardener, like the disciples, like the angels, if they don't have this information, the gardener is of little help to Mary. Because the one thing, the only thing the grief-stricken Mary seeks right now is Jesus. Mary. Mary. The grief of Mary is unaffected by a rolled away stone. The grief of Mary is unassuaged by an empty tomb. The grief of Mary is unfazed by the sight of angels. Mary's vision is so blinded by the grief that she has that she can't even see Jesus standing right in front of her. The tears, the weeping that we read again and again in this account of Mary seem to have blinded her vision. What Mary needs to pierce the veil of grief and sorrow is not to see something, but to hear something, a singular word, a name, Mary. Who can speak a powerful enough word to pierce the veil of grief that has fallen upon our country and our world? Who could possibly offer a word of comfort to the millions this Easter morning who will wake up and the first thing that will come to their mind is, the one I love is not with me. Who could possibly speak a word that could bring comfort to all those waking up in the dark of Ukraine and bombed out cities and hospitals and gardens who are overwhelmed with grief at the loss of a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a daughter, a son by this cruel and senseless and evil war? Who can pierce the veil? Only a wounded Savior. Only a wounded Savior. Only one who himself is a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, only that one can pierce the veil. Only that one who knows, who has experienced what it's like to die at the hands of empire, to be tortured and slaughtered in the cruelest and most humane, inhumane manner possible. Only that one. As followers of Jesus, we offer no great philosophical answer in a world to the world of grief to the pain of the world which feels so inexplicable, inexplicable. As followers of Jesus, we don't offer a pat answer. What we offer is a wounded Savior. As Peter Weiner writes, the God of the Christian faith is not just sympathetic, he is empathetic. Did you hear that? 
God is not just a God who is sympathetic with your pain and the pain of the world, with your wounds and the wounds of the world, though he surely is that. No, our God is not just sympathetic, he is empathetic because our Savior is a wounded Savior. The only one that can pierce the veil of Mary's grief is the one who has experienced the deepest level of grief imaginable and come out the other side. Jesus isn't just wounded, he's a wounded Savior. He has the power to save, to heal, to restore, to make whole, to bring back to life. He knows how to get you to the other side of pain and death and grief because he has traveled that path himself. Our story takes place in a cemetery, but not just any cemetery, it's a garden cemetery. I know many of you love your gardens, especially this time of year, as those gardens then come to life. Hope springs alive in gardens as the new growth of spring emerges from the dead of winter. Gardens are places of hope and rebirth. Gardens in the Bible are also places of new beginnings. Back in Genesis, in this, the beginning of this big epic story we're living in, that started in a garden. And now, as we are on the other side of resurrection, we find ourselves again in a garden, a place of new beginnings. After frantically searching the garden for Jesus, Mary has found the object of request, Jesus. And understandably, now that Mary has found Jesus, she doesn't want to let him go. She clings to him. I'm imagining a parent whose, whose child has gone missing and, and for whom the, the parent has been frantically searching. And, and once, if it was me, once I found that child, I would not want to let that child go. But I would have to because that story of the child has to go on. Mary clings to Jesus. She doesn't want to let him go. She's finally found him. But Jesus says, do not hold on to me because there's more to this story. This is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story. The garden is the beginning, is a new beginning for Jesus. He has conquered sin and death and the devil. He is wounded. He is a savior, but guess what? He's also Lord. Now he is Lord. He will send to heaven and take his rightful place on the throne. The garden is a new beginning for Jesus. The garden is also a new beginning for Jesus' disciples. Rather than clinging to Jesus, Mary is to go to the disciples and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The message that Mary is entrusted with is the message that through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, a new relationship with God is possible. My Father is now your Father, Jesus says. My God is now your God. The garden is a new beginning for the disciples then and disciples now. The garden is a new beginning for Mary Mary's grief has been transformed into joy. Mary will again run away from that tomb towards the disciples, but this time not with a message of alarm, but ecstatic joy. I have seen the Lord. Listen to what Mary says. I have seen the Lord. As Carolyn Lewis points out, Mary does not offer the disciples a third person impersonal doctrinal statement about Jesus' resurrection like we do at Easter when we say Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. There is a time and place for that, to work out the implications and meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. But at this moment in the garden, that's not the time. This is not the time for an impersonal doctrinal statement about Jesus. No, this is a time for running and shouting at the top of one's lungs, I have seen the Lord. I was on a frantic and desperate quest to find Jesus, and I found him. 
And it was better than I ever dreamed. Because you know what? I went out seeking a dead corpse, and instead I was, the one, I was found by the one who spoke my name. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What is your quest? If you are here on Easter morning to join with others and proclaim he is risen, that's a good start, but that's not enough. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop searching the garden. Cemetery gardens on Easter morning are places to bring your grief and your pain and your sorrow to a wounded Savior. Cemetery gardens on Easter morning are places for frantic searching in the dark for the one thing, the one person that matters and is the only thing worth frantically searching for. Cemetery gardens on Easter morning are places of ecstatic joy because it's in cemetery gardens on Easter morning that the lost and the weary and the grief-stricken and the sinners and the broken and the frantic hear a singular word. Not a word to the crowds, but a voice that speaks your name. Hear it. Believe it. Let it transform you. Let it send you off in a sprint with the words from your lips. I have seen the Lord.